Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. God's people are often referred to as exiles upon the earth, people living in a foreign land, among a foreign culture. If that's the case for God's people individually, what does it mean for the church? This is a three-part series about how to be a church in exile. Good morning. Welcome to Grace Life. How are you guys doing? Y'all doing well? All right. Before we get into the message, I want to remind you what's going on this weekend. So as you just heard, no Christmas services next Sunday because that is Christmas Sunday and you need to take time to be with your families and all that great stuff. So nobody freak out. It's going to be okay. God's got his church in his hand. True story. About five or six years ago, uh, because of leap year, it wasn't exactly seven years ago, but Christmas also fell on a Sunday. And we had a family who decided to visit Grace Life for the very first time ever on Christmas Day. And we were closed. So they went to another church down the street. But they came back the next week to remind me that we were closed. And they had to come and find that out by knocking on the door. And guess what? They're still here. They've been here ever since. So here's the thing. God's got his church in his hands. It'll be okay. Here's what your job is. Your job is Saturday night, your friends, your co-workers, Christmas Eve service on the way out the door. We're going to give you one of these. Take one, uh, unless you're forgetful, take two, because if you need one for you, one of them is for a coworker or a friend or a neighbor, two services, 3.30 and 5. But here's the thing. Let me teach you how to use this. Don't put this on someone's car under their windshield wiper and run. Don't put this on a coworker's desk and run. No, go up to someone and say, hey, do you have a church to worship at on Christmas Eve? And, and, and maybe even ask better, what church are you worshiping at on Christmas Eve? Because if you ask them if they have, they'll say, sure, they have one. They're just not going. What church are you worshiping at Christmas Eve? Almost as though you're, you're insinuating you might come with them. So they've got to give you a straight answer. And they say, well, well, I haven't decided yet. You say, would you come to church with me? Don't just give them a card. Don't just say, here's a good one. But say, would you come to church with me? Give them this card. And then do something like this. I will meet you 10 minutes before it starts in the parking lot by the blue tent. You see, so when they're thinking at the last minute they're not going to come, they realize they left you standing out in the cold. They're actually going to show up. That's how you do that anyway. uh, Next week I'll teach you how to sell a used car, but that's... uh... Actually, I'm not very good at that, so there you go. All right, well, we're in a series we've been doing called A Church in Exile. Today is the last part, part three of the series And the series began a few months ago when we did a series called Life in Exile. And it was about a guy named Daniel who was taken into exile into Babylon. And although he lived surrounded by a pagan world, he had incredible influence on the people around him for the glory of God. And so the question that we have been asking ourselves that came out of that series is, how can we be a church with great influence for the glory of God? Because we're surrounded by by a non-Christian world. How can we have great influence? And so as we're doing this series and and, and wrapping things up today, I've got the great privilege of standing on stage. Now, some of you may think, that's not a privilege, Jimmy. That would terrify me. If I had to go up there right now, like I would, I would probably like get sick on the way or something. But for me, I love this. This is what God called me to do. And I'm very comfortable being here. For those of you who have heard some of my story, you know that I went to college as a concert pianist. I'm used to being on stage. Then I became a band director. I'm used to being on stage. And now I'm a pastor. I'm used to being on stage. I'm on stage a lot. But but here's the thing. Because I'm on stage a lot, I know the difference in what's going on in the crowd. So as a musician, I could tell you what the difference was and how it felt between a rehearsal 
and a concert. You see, a rehearsal, everybody in the room is there to be part of what's going on. At a concert, many people just come to watch. And as a pastor, I've learned to feel the difference in the spiritual atmosphere between all of us are coming to do something special versus when some of us are just coming to see something special. So the question that we need to ask ourselves as we begin today is, are you here to do something special or just to see something special? And so here's a little question that I don't want us to ask because everybody always asks this and they get the wrong idea. They say, you know, what if I didn't do this? What if I didn't do what I did? Well, if I didn't do what I did, somebody else would. I mean, y'all do know I go on vacation, right? And when I go on vacation, somebody else preaches. If I didn't preach, somebody else would preach. If Brett didn't lead worship, somebody else would lead worship. If you didn't work in the nursery, somebody else would work in the nursery. That's why that's not a good question. Because it gives you the idea that you're not important and what you do is easily replaced. So I want us to ask two different questions this morning. And before I do this, can I just go ahead and ask for your grace? Because if we want to grow and we want to change God might convict us. Is that okay? So I'm going to ask questions that's going to step on somebody's toes. One of these two questions is going to get you. You just pick which one, but don't throw anything at me. Question number one, what if no one did what I did? Meaning, sometimes we think, I I just keep like one one kid. I just just serve in this little room, and only one kid shows up in my age group, and you know, what, what? Yeah, but what if no one did that? then the kids would be running the aisles right now and you wouldn't be able to listen to me and pay attention because no one would be taking care of our children. You may think, I'm just one of many people that wears a blue shirt, stands by the door and says, welcome to Grace Life. Yeah, what if no one did that? What if no one ever said to a guest, welcome to Grace Life? Would you like free coffee? Glad to have you here. Could I help you find a seat? What if no one did that? What if a guest got out of their car, they had to open the door themselves, they walked in here, no one ever said a word to them? How do you think that would work? What if no one played on the worship team? Here's the second question. What if everyone did what I did? So what if no one did what I did? For those of you that think what you do is not important, what if no one did what you do? And for those of you, well, I'll just let you decide how much you do ask this question. What if everyone did what I did? What if everyone showed up when I show up two minutes after the service? No, I'm just kidding. What if everyone left when I left? What if everyone served the way I serve? What if everyone gave the way I gave? What if everyone did what I did? So I'm sure one of those two questions is going to hurt you, your feelings in, in some way, but I want us just to use that as a tool to answer the real question, which is this one. What does God want from us? What does God want from us? That's really the only question that matters. It doesn't matter what I want from you. It doesn't matter what the people sitting beside you want from you. It doesn't matter what, any, what matters is what God wants from you. And so we are doing uh, these last two parts out of a passage that we began last week. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I think I messed up because the reality is the more that I've worked on last week's sermon and today's message, and I've been looking at this passage, it's one sentence I realize I should have done an entire series on it. There is so much more I need to say that I don't have time to say that I'm not going to get to say, and you're just going to have to forgive me for that. Is that okay? Everybody good with that? So here we are. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. God might speak to you. You might want to take notes or something like that. But if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. It's on the screen right behind me. 
And so here's how it begins. It says, as you come to him, him who? Jesus. As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Here's what that means. As you come to Jesus, God's doing something. God's doing something in you. God is doing something through you. The question is, what is that? And last week we began to answer the question. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And so last week I literally had a rock. If you were here, I had a stone. I went and bought a stone so I could stand here and hold it and and show you that God takes individual stones and he shapes them and he prepares them to be part of something bigger. That he takes these stones and he shapes them together so they become a part of his family, which is known as the church. See, individual stones by themselves, the best that they can be is a doorstop. But when God brings us all together and he shapes us into something, we can be something beautiful and powerful. And so what we discovered last week is that your purpose and your destiny does not come in isolation, but in his church. Never comes in isolation. You will never find the full purpose of your life. You will never find fulfillment as who God created you to be just wandering around as one little stone. You will find that inside of his church working upon the earth. That was last week. And so we're going to pick up the second part of this phrase this week, to be a holy priesthood, to be a holy priesthood. I wish I had more time to talk about the rest of it, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Not going to have time to do all of that. Again, would have been a great series. So I went and did a little bit of looking up on this. What does it mean to say that we are being built up into a holy priesthood? Well, the first thing it means is that All of us become priests. All of us become priests. Okay? All of us. It's not just a few of us. All of us become priests. And so here's a phrase we're going to use today. It's this. Everyone a priest. And not not everyone. I need you to make sure you understand the grammar this morning. Not everyone a priest. Because when we say everyone, you see a crowd suddenly. If I said everyone, thank you for coming today, you just got included with a crowd. No, no, no. I mean every one a priest. Every one. Every one. Every one. Every one a priest. So every one of us is a priest. And so here's the question is what in the world does that mean? Because, see, when this was written, it was written to people who understood what that was. And we're not talking about a Catholic priest today. We're talking about the Jewish priest back in the day. And so they were writing to people who understood that. They knew exactly what a Jewish priest was, so they had a point of reference. If we're going to learn anything today, we need the same point of reference. So we've got to answer two questions first. Who was a priest and what did a priest do? Who was a priest and what did a priest do? Okay, so here's the thing. I'm going to give you a visual illustration because I'm a visual person. I always learn better when it's visual. And if you're like me, I'm going to help you out. The rest of you can just entertain yourselves. All right, so here you go. It starts like this. There were the people of Israel. And so the people of Israel came from a guy named Israel, right? And God said, I'm going to make this great nation out of you. And Israel, his name was formerly Jacob. Does anybody remember when we did a series about Jacob and how God gave him a new name? Okay, so this is Jacob. Jacob is Israel, and Jacob had 12 sons. And so as as the nation became populous, they referred to themselves back to which one of the 12 sons they came from as a tribe. What tribe? And so there were 12 tribes, and one of the sons, his name was Levi, and so one of those 12 tribes was the Levites. 
Now, what did the Levites do? They had one very specific job. They did all of the work at the temple so that people could worship. That was their job. They didn't keep the sheep. They didn't keep the farms. They didn't grow the crops. They did all of the work in the temple so that people could come and worship. Well, one more thing happened. Now let's figure out where priests came from. God took the Levites and he said, out of this group of people, we're going to have one family, one special family. It's a guy named Aaron and his sons and his sons after him and their sons after them and their sons after them. They will be the priest. They will be the priest. They will do all of the special things that people need to see done in order for them to worship when they come in for these big festivals. So y'all follow this? We've got all of the people of Israel, and out of them, 11 tribes will show up and watch one tribe. One tribe is the Levites. They do all of the work, and out of that one tribe is this one special little family. They get to stand on stage. Okay, now, here's the problem with this. It established a way of worshiping that is still done today. And I know many of you think, well, of course, Jimmy, the Jews are still worshiping. No, no, no. I wasn't talking about the Jews. I was talking about us. You and me, right here in Grace Life Church, and actually, in my opinion, in every other church in America, except for maybe the one that I don't know about that's already preached this sermon. Because let me show it to you visually. Just like they have the people of Israel, we have the people of the church. And out of the people of the church, we have one elite little group. It sometimes works out to be about one out of 12, by the way. They're called our volunteers. And they do all of the work so that people can come and worship. And out of that, we get one even more small select group. I was educated in South Carolina. Sorry about that grammar in that sentence there. Don't blame me, blame my English teacher. All right, anyway. And out of that group, we, we have one more select little group. That's the best I can do. <laughs> called the pastors. The pastors. Wow. So here's the thing. What would you think if I told you I personally believe the church in the West, the church in America, and unfortunately us as well, we do church more like the Old Testament than the New Thank y'all. I only got one sound out of the other service, like one. One guy said, ouch. Everybody just looked at me. There was a lot more, huh? Out of there. That, was, that was very good. See, here's the thing. Back in the 60s, there started a movement. Uh, it was a Jesus movement, and all kinds of crazy things came out of it. But one of them was the idea of being a New Testament church. And a New Testament church is not somebody who hates the Old Testament. It's not people who don't believe in the Old Testament or don't preach it. It just means that they do church like what you see in the New Testament. That when Jesus came, something changed about how we do church. And New Testament churches model what happened after Jesus. And if you come to our stuff on Sunday night when we tell you about the church, I'm going to stand there and tell you we are a New Testament church. The problem is when I started studying scripture recently, it hit me. I'm lying. Because we're not a New Testament church. We do it just like the Old Testament. We do church today more like that. You see, here's the thing. Here's what was and here's what is. Let me show you what should be. Let's talk about what the New Testament is. It is simply the people of God. Every 
one a priest. It's not one select tribe that gets to do the work. It's not one select family that gets all the privilege. It is every one a priest. Every one a priest. You see, the only difference today for you and me between the Old Testament and what we do is that we don't have to bring our animals with us. And they're still alive when the service is over. For those of you that don't know, that's what Old Testament worship was about. You were a sinner. And the the only thing that could atone for sin was death, was blood that came from life. And so every week, someone in the Old Testament would have to show up at the temple and they would bring an animal, a pure animal, and their most valuable animal, and they would give it to the priest and the priest would kill it. What's really funny is that my job description was more like a butcher back then than it is what I get to do today. Miserable job. I'm glad I don't have to do that. But they would, they would bring this animal. It would be killed. The blood would be shed. They would atone for their sins. And so one of the things that the priest ultimately did when we said, who is a priest? We answered that. What did a priest do? Priest bridged the gap between sinful people and a holy God. Over here is all the Israelites. They've sinned all week long, so they come to the temple. They bring an animal. I would kill the animal if I'm the priest. The blood would be shed. The animal would be burned. And then God would be appeased. And God would be pleased for that week. Unfortunately, they go back to work and they sin again. And next week, they've got to come back again. And a priest would bridge the gap between a sinful people and a holy God. But now, every one a priest, every one a priest. So here's the question. What does it mean for every one of us to be a priest? And so here's what I think it means is that we must all share the duties of worship that enable worship. We must all share the duties of worship that enable worship because that's what they did. Only a few would share the duties of worship so that many would be able to worship. And God has said, no, 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 I'm not going to do this where I've got a tiny group of priests. You're all a priesthood. We must all share the duties of worship that enable worship. And there are two avenues that this works for us in. Two. The first one is to the world. To the world. We've been called to be priests to the world. You see, just like I was explaining how the priest bridge the gap from a sinful people to a holy God. You and I still do that today, except it's not to the people in the room with their animals. It's to our co-workers. It is to our neighbors. It is to our family. It's to everybody else that we look at them and say, let me help you find a holy God. Let me help bridge the gap. I know the truth. And let me show you one of the most amazing things Paul said. I have to tell you the truth. I've read the Bible so many times, I can't even count them. And I never saw this until I was preparing this message this week. But here's what Paul said about his role as a priest to the world. He said this, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. But let's just stop right there. Do you ever read the Bible and get confused because you've got Pharisees and Sadducees and Jews and Israelites and Amorites and thisites and thatsites? And then, you, I mean, just, you just ever get confused? So let me help you out. Whenever you see the word Gentile, It simply means non-believer. Gentiles were non-Jews. Jews Jews knew who the one true living God is, whereas Gentiles did not. They did not worship him as the one true living God. So it's easier for you now in 2016, anytime you're reading your Bible, you come across the word Gentiles, just insert non-believers. So here's what Paul says. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the non-believers in the priestly service? 
thought Jesus came and died, and you're still being a priest. Yeah, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the non-believers may be acceptable. What in the world does that mean? Let me tell you what that means. All of the non-believers are preparing an offering, and it's an offering they hope is going to be good enough. They know that there's a heaven out there. At least most people believe that there is still one statistically, and they're thinking that they're offering. They're going to plan on getting there and standing before God and saying, Oh, man, I hope my offering is acceptable. So, God, here's what I did. You know, I, I, I gave blood at a blood bank, and, and I, I served in the Peace Corps, and uh, I, I did these other things. I, I gave to some homeless people, and I did all these things to be a pretty good person, and I hope that my offering is acceptable. But in our priestly service to the world, it is our job to look at our friends and our neighbors and say, No. When you stand before Jesus, the answer, the acceptable sacrifice is not your shabby list of the things you attempted to do to be good enough. No, that that will not be an acceptable offering. The only offering is when you look at Jesus and say, you are the acceptable offering. You are the only thing. And the only thing I can do is lay down my life now for what you have done for me. The only acceptable offering I have is me today for you, for what you've done for me. And it is our job as the priesthood to this world to make sure they know that their, their offering must be acceptable and there's only one. It's our job. When your next door neighbor shows up before Jesus with the wrong answer, we were not good priests. When our coworker that we went to lunch with three times a week shows up before Jesus' face with the wrong answer, we were not good priests. We are called to be a holy priesthood to this world and also in the church. In the church. This is what Paul also said. What then, brothers, when you come together? Let's just go ahead and can we make that practical? When you come here on Sunday, when you come here on Sunday, each one, every one a priest. Not most of you, not some of you, not the most talented of you. Each one has a hymn. Each one has a lesson. Each one has a revelation. Each one has a tongue. Each one has an interpretation. Let everything be done for building up, for the building up of the church, for the building up of the body. Let everything be done. Each one has something. Here's what that means. If you can sing in tune, then you have a hymn and you should be on the worship team. The worship team in God's church should never lack for talent. It should never lack. We should never have someone up here where there's just a hole, an instrument's not being played, a, a, a thing is not being sung. That should never happen because each one, and I just know numerically the number of people in this church, there have got to be people who can sing in tune and hold a microphone at the same time. And not everybody can do that, by the way. There are people who cannot chew gum and walk. And there are some people, they can't do both of these things. There are some people who can play an instrument, but they can't play an instrument and think about God at the same time. And, and if you can play an instrument and think about God, you are gifted. Each one, you have a hymn. How about this? Each one has a lesson. And you may say, I don't, I, I, no, I don't want your job, Jimmy. Well, good, because I like my job. You don't need my job. Maybe your lesson, you're thinking, I don't know Greek words. I don't know how to read a commentary. I don't know any of that stuff. All I know is Jesus loves you and died for you. Good. Your lesson works for the four-year-olds. We've got a room full of four-year-olds, and that is where your lesson belongs. 
Maybe some of you say, oh, not only do I know that, I know about Moses and Daniel. Good, your lesson belongs with the eight-year-olds. We will we'll move you up in age group because everyone has a lesson. Every one of us has something to do. Nobody's supposed to be here just to watch. Now, if Paul had consulted me, I really don't understand why they didn't ask my opinion when writing the Bible because I could have helped out. Sorry, God. But here's what I don't understand. Paul is referring to spiritual gifts, but he doesn't include all of them. And if I had my way, Paul would have given us more examples. Because after all, he's the one that wrote about all the spiritual gifts. Why did he only include a few? And, and, and you know, it's probably because he thinks we're smart enough to know to include the rest of them. But, you know, preachers, we like to make things overly obvious. Each one has a hymn. Each one has a lesson. Each one has a way to lead. Each one has a way to serve. Here's the thing. Many of you are bored out of your brains in church. And I don't necessarily mean on Sunday morning because I do my best not to let you get bored. But, but you're just, you're like, well, what's the point of church, you know, or whatever. Because you're a leader and you're not doing it and you're following and leaders are bored when they follow. Or, or you're called to serve and you're not doing that. And so you think, man, I'm not, I don't have any purpose around here. Of course you don't have purpose because you're not bringing it. You've, you're not doing what God's given you to do. I wish I could just lift every single spiritual gift right now. Each one has something. Each one a priest. And I'll calm down. Each one a priest. See, it works like this. I want you to imagine a family meal. This is easy for us to do this time of year because we're in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I want you to think about this. When we do a family meal, when we come together for one of these big family meals, each one should be part of preparing that meal. You see, I grew up with my mom was one, uh, one of I can talk. My mom was one of nine children, three girls and six boys. And the way that this thing went down was that the six boys and their kids would show up and watch the three women do everything. And it shouldn't be that way. And so we've got that uncle You've all got that uncle. I've got that uncle. I won't name him in case anybody's listening in my family. But he shows up, sits down, and says, tell me when, when it's time to eat. And no lie, as soon as I start praying, because, you know, pastor and the family got to pray at every meal. Like, I'm the only guy that knows how to talk to Jesus. I'm not sure why that is. Do the pastor and your family a favor and pray for him. I don't mean pray for him. I mean pray for him the next time there's a meal. I'm not the only guy that can bless the food. Anyway, as soon as I start blessing the food, no lie, I open my eyes. He is beside the plates and napkins. Didn't do a thing. Somebody has got to be involved in preparing the meal. Nobody likes that uncle, so stop being that uncle on Sunday morning. Prepare the meal. And you may think, well, that's not my gift, Pastor. I'm not a very good cook. Fine, set the table. You know how to put a plate in front of every chair. You know how to put a fork and a knife. Oh, somebody else has already got that. Okay, then light some candles and create atmosphere and turn on Christmas music. Get your Spotify playlist going. You can do something to be a part of what God is doing because everyone a priest in the church. And to the world, the worst thing that we can do is have an empty seat at that table. Worst thing that we can do. Go to your neighbor who has no family and say, hey, my family has an empty seat at our table this Christmas. The worst thing that we can do every single Sunday is have empty seats. I mean, look around the room. I mean, we're actually pretty full. I get it. But look around the room. There are empty seats. And yet every one of us knows somebody that doesn't know what Jesus has done for him. We're not bringing people to the table. We're serving a meal 
Some of us are serving a meal, the rest of us are eating, and nobody or few are bringing. See, here's the thing about being a priest. Do you realize this is a promotion? You realize it's a promotion? You see, back in the Old Testament, some people got to be shepherds. There you go. Go deal with the stinky sheep. Shave them once a year. That's it. Just go deal with the sheep. You, you go plant some crops. Plant some crops. Bring them in when they're done. Just get, get over there. Get, get in the, we don't want no one to talk to you. Get out of here. But you, you get to be the priest. You get, you get to work in the temple. You get to go where nobody else gets to go. You get to touch what nobody else gets to touch. You get to see what nobody else gets to see. You get to experience what nobody else gets to experience. Do you understand the privilege you have as a priest? It's a promotion. It's the best job that you could ever have a priest before God. Are you kidding me? And some of us go, no, thank you, God, for the promotion. I got a lot going on. I got a career I got to work on. I've only got enough time to kind of scoot in, do my worship, and get back out. I got a lot going. I don't need the promotion. Wow. See, everyone a priest means more work. Anybody ever been promoted and didn't do more work? Okay, seriously, raise your hand. We'll know you work for the government. (laughs) See, everyone a priest, when you get promoted, you do more work, you have more responsibility, you make more sacrifice. And let's just stop and talk about that for a minute, because here's where I think people misunderstand something. They get this idea. Jesus came to be the sacrifice. We don't have to make a sacrifice anymore. And I would say you misunderstand. You misunderstand. Here, let's go back and read what we read. To be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. See, here's the thing. Yes, Jesus came. Jesus died. His blood was shed. He became the ultimate, permanent, final, perfect sacrifice. Never again will a body have to be killed to pay for our sin. Never again will life be taken to pay for our sin. The physical sacrifice is done, and yet God still says when you show up, bring a spiritual sacrifice. Let me tell you why. Sacrifice did two things. Number one, appeased God. And number two, pleased God. The death of Jesus for our sins appeased God. No longer do you have to worry about the wrath of God being poured out on you and you spend an eternity in hell. Jesus appeased God. That's why you and I get eternity in heaven. Jesus appeased God. But then there's also a sacrifice where we do something out of costly devotion to please God. And here's what you need to understand about the Old Testament. They brought their best animals, their perfect animals, their most valuable animal, because God told them to, for one, and number two, he wouldn't accept anything else. If you can think about how valuable it was financially, how valuable it was as food, they brought this to seemingly waste. It was killed and burned. Are you kidding me, God? Is that all you want? No, it's a sacrifice. It's a costly devotion that says how much I mean to you. It's a costly devotion. That's what a sacrifice is supposed to be. They give their best. They give their most valuable. And all too often, we in our own lives, somebody will come to you and say, hey, could you help out and do this? You want me to serve? How? I'm sorry, that's not good for me. You want me to give how much? I'm sorry, that's not good for me. You want me to spend time with who and help them learn to read their Bible? Oh, I don't like them. That's not good for me. Serving is not 
about what's good for you. You see, that's a volunteer mentality, and I've trained our staff here. They correct themselves anytime the word volunteer comes out of their mouth. It's a bad word. It is a cuss word here at Grace Life to say volunteer because volunteer means you give a little of your extra that you don't really need to kind of do a little something for a good cause. But you see, our king is Jesus who said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus didn't give a little extra for a good cause. He gave it all for the only cause. That's what we're called to do. It is called sacrificial serving, sacrificial serving. And it is a spiritual sacrifice. It doesn't matter if it's good. I'm sorry to be so blunt. I'm sorry. Somebody's going to hate me when this is over with, but the whole, well, that's not good for, I don't want to get up that early. You know, we've actually had people try to join the team. They're like, yeah, I can make coffee. I'll make coffee. I'll join the coffee team. Oh, Sundays at 7 a.m.? I'm sorry, that's not good for me. That's not good for me. I'll just get my own coffee at Starbucks. I'll see you at the 1030 service. Let me tell you some stories. Did y'all, y'all see that, that lady that was singing? She was singing right here. I mean, she's like this big. God gave her a body this big. And a, and a heart of worship and a voice that's this big. Isn't she amazing? Yeah. Think about her husband. She's got twin little boys and a daughter. And in order for her to be here every Thursday night for hours while she's at rehearsal, he has to take care of the kids. And then on Sunday morning, she's here at, at dark and stays until like one, singing all day long. You want to talk about sacrificially serving and, and him. Man, let me tell you about being a man. Her husband's a Marine. You want to be a real Marine is somebody who can get those two little twin boys dressed and out of the house on Sunday morning. That takes a Marine to get that done. And we've got, got one of our families that's, they've been here forever, it seems like. Uh, they're actually one of our elders, and the wife works in the nursery. They live in Irmo. They live, like, for those of you who don't know, that's over 30 minutes from here. And, and she serves, not volunteers, she serves sacrificially with the children. And because they also have three small children that they don't want to just leave sitting around out in the parking lot or something like that, when she serves, they drive two cars to church a half hour each way. They attend worship together. And then while she's serving in the next service, he takes care of the children and goes home. It's sacrificial serving. I think it'd be very easy to say, you want me to serve in the nursery? That's not good for me. I got three kids and I live like an hour round trip. How about my son? Can I just talk about my son for a minute? I mean, hey, why not talk about everybody else? Playing drums this morning. So every Thursday night, I mean, teenagers. we got two teenagers on the stage today, by the way. And, and, and so they have to go to school all day long. They get out of school, and what do we ask them to do? Go straight from school to here so you can do worship practice until after 9 p.m. so you can go home and do homework until whatever hour. I wish he did more of it, but anyway. And be back at school the next day. Also, that on Saturday they can go get a little bit of money. Teenagers need a little bit of money, work a job. He gets home at 11 o'clock at night, so he's back up here at dark again on Sunday morning. Talk about serving sacrificially. This is what God has for us. Every one a priest. Every one a priest. You see, there are too many Christians. I want to show you this image again. There are too many Christians that think that the whole role is for 11 tribes to come and watch one do their thing. And that's not it at all. So I'm going to close this series with the biggest challenge yet. If you are mad at me, you're only going to get more mad, but answer this question. What do you do 
to serve sacrificially for the sake of the gospel? What do you do to serve sacrificially for the sake of the gospel? And and, and I just need to tell you the truth. Not every good thing you do counts. You see, here's the deal. A good person volunteers in the Red Cross. But a priest serves in the church for the sake of the gospel. A good person bakes cookies for their neighbor, but a priest bridges the gap between their neighbor and a holy God. A good person gives leftover clothes to goodwill, but a priest gives to fund the mission that the church would be powerful upon the earth. What do you do to serve sacrificially for the sake of the gospel? Back to where we started. What if no one did what you do? What if everyone did what you do? What kind of priest are you? The whole point of this series was to say we want to be a church with great influence. We want to be a church with great influence. And and every Tuesday when the staff comes together for our staff meeting and prayer and then throughout the week, I'm always praying. I've asked God to make us an influential church. That God would give us people like mayors and governors and congressmen and senators. I mean, we're in a state capital. We should be praying for things like this, CEOs. That when someone speaks, that when that person speaks for the glory of God, that they've got hundreds that hear, thousands that hear, that they have great influence. But I'm going to tell you this. If we want to be a church of great influence... It does not matter how many people are here. It matters how many of us are priests. It doesn't matter how big we get. We are growing and we are growing fast. That's kind of the reason for this series. Our influence is not going to be determined by our size. It's going to be determined by the number of us. Every one a priest. Every one a priest. I want to end today by talking to those of you that don't know if you're a priest. You see this whole thing about being a part of the priesthood, this whole destiny I've been talking about. I hope it was exciting to you, but you're not in the priesthood because you went to church, even if you went to church a lot. The people who are in the priesthood are people who recognize Jesus was the sacrifice for them, and now they live their lives for his glory. Someone who says, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. I want to live for you. Maybe you've heard it put like this. Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Here a lot we use the words, Jesus is our King. It's not about how often you've been to the temple to worship. That didn't make anybody a priest back in the Old Testament. They went week after week after week. They didn't become priests. You become priests because the sacrifice has been made for you. And if you have never interacted with Jesus, if you've never looked at him and said, thank you for dying for me, I want to live for you. I want to help you do that here this morning. I want to just help you have a conversation, the beginning of a conversation. Would you join me? Just pray something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you, Lord, that you died for me. And now I want to live for you. I thank you that you are the ultimate sacrifice. And instead of death, I get life. I thank you for your love your mercy, and your forgiveness. And my simple prayer today is that you will give me a life 
of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at gracelifechurch.com.